welcome to the TLDR News Podcast. I'm joined today again by Zach, our Editor-in-Chief, and Rory, a uh, writer. <laughs> You've got to do that again. <laughs> no, that's good. Let's go straight in. Go on. That's fine. We'll yeah. keep that, are we? Okay. Yeah, um, so, in today's podcast, we're going to split it into sort of three sections. We're going to start with migration, uh, and then discuss a bit about the direction of the government, and then end with some post-Brexit border checks. No, end on a high, and you like Brexit <laughs> stuff. Yeah, very uh, exciting. So uh, something to look forward to. Yeah, uh, as we power through the first two topics. Uh, so let's start uh, with migration. I know that um, you've got some I've been things digging to, into this. Yeah, yeah. You, you want to talk about it here, Rory? Um, effectively, uh, the government over the last year or so, they've come up with a lot of like flagship policies on stopping the boats. You know, it's been their whole thing. Um, one of their priorities. Those included putting asylum seekers uh, on barges, putting them in old military um, bases. The Rwanda scheme, obviously, um, deporting people to Rwanda. Um, But one by one, these things have kind of either failed or stalled or, you know, being drawn out, legal processes, whatever. Um, And there's been quite a few updates on those in the last week, last few weeks, uh, which I think are worth going through. So on the barge thing, um, there's this big... 200 room 200 and something room barge that's finally been docked uh, in dorset and this was where the government was going to house 500 or so asylum seekers um and it was part of their big plan but they've had to delay putting people onto the actual barge because of safety concerns the fire brigades union has raised concerns about fire issues about whether there's enough you know um, routes out, mm-hmm. um, fire escapes and things. And yeah, so the Home Office has postponed actually putting the first people on that on that barge. Um, and this was one of their big their big things they celebrated. They celebrated when they uh, when they kind of reserved the barge, they celebrated when they brought it into Dorset, and now they've had to actually delay um, putting people on it. Um, celebrating so reserving a barge is yeah, so premature. Yeah, you know, we've acquired a barge. <laughs> um, so yeah. That's the threshold for government yeah. achievement these yes. days. Yeah. Um, and obviously, this is something that campaigners had been pointing out for quite a while, that it's probably not going to be safe, especially as... So th- this barge, for reference, has gets used for all sorts of things. Um, in some cases, it's been a floating prison. In some cases, it's been um, accommodation for construction workers. Mm. But it's actually designed for 200-and-something people, yet the government have had it kind of retrofitted so you can fit two people per room so they can put 500-and-something people on, um, which has obviously led to concerns about overcrowding and... and that type of thing. On a similar note, uh, they had their plan to go and house asylum seekers in uh, old military bases, one in Essex and one in Lincolnshire. Both of these also not going to the timetable that the government wanted. So RAF Scampton, which is the one in Lincolnshire, they were meant to move 2,000 asylum seekers there uh, sometime around now, but they've delayed that until October because they still haven't carried out sufficient checks and surveys on the buildings and the grounds. Um, Wethersfield, which is the other one uh, in Essex, um, they've put 46 people in there. It's meant to house like a few thousand, but they've put 46 people in there and there's already an outbreak of tuberculosis. So oh, that's really? obviously delayed things and amid concerns that if they you know, put more people in, that's obviously a bad, bad idea. Um, so that's, so two of those, their big flagship plans to tackle the small boats crisis um, have kind of uh, flopped, if you will, so far. Um, and obviously, I think we must have talked about this in a, you know, a few episodes back, but the um, plan to send uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda deemed unlawful by the High Court or the Court of Appeal. I can't remember which one. So that's going to Supreme Court now. So that's still on ice. Um, so, yeah, all of their big flagship policies on this seem to have just 
kind of either been stopped in their tracks or being like drawn out in the courts. Which which is a quite a big problem because the a lot of these plans are to do with image and trying to and mm. posturing and yeah. if a lot of them are being struck down it doesn't look great although i suppose there is the argument that it kind of builds into their whole argument that you know lefty lawyers are, are blocking things it, again yeah. and stopping all these things it, working it sort of does but interestingly a lot of the opposition to the barge and the two um military bases that they want to use a lot of that opposition is coming from local people local councils which are actually conservative um a lot of that opposition is not necessarily out of compassion for the people who might be put in there but it's more about you can't you know dump two thousand people in this military base near a small village in essex for example um and expect local residents to be happy about it yeah um so so that so actually the conservative party have kind of started a bit of a war with their own local supporters in many places over these um over these plans but i think like you said about the whole you know we're being stopped by unelected judges or whatever lawyers um that kind of is a uh, is in play with the the rwanda plan that's yeah. definitely their narrative on that one yeah but i think that flies with like the most right-wing slice mm. of the electorate but mo- loads of people most brits care about immigration i think it's an issue i think the small boat's an issue and i think the majority of those brits that doesn't fly with because i think after a while it just sort of looks cheap and you mainly just look incompetent. Like you can blame lefty laws for so long, but if like you've got like how many schemes you've just outlined, you know, yeah. the Rwanda run doesn't work, barge doesn't work, army bases doesn't work. Uh, these all bilateral deals with the French don't yeah. really work. After a while, you just seem incompetent. And then I think the incompetence morphs into nastiness. Mm. And I think you can see why they're doing it because if it does work, you, you know, you get, you get to be, look competent and also you avoid the nastiness charge because you can paint yourself as pragmatic. Mm. But I do think that if we just, if the government just keeps on repeating schemes and they keep on failing, you do just look incompetent and nasty. And the lefty lawyers thing only flies yeah. maybe once. It doesn't fly four times. Did you see the tweet that Rishi Sunak put out about how he said, uh, I think his exact words were something like a subset of lawyers, the Labour Party and criminal gangs are all working together, you know, to mm. to let you know, stop people smugglers or whatever. When but, I read that, I you could see that he thought by using the word subset, like he yeah. covered it in enough like intellectual veneer yeah. to get away yeah. with it. I didn't say <laughs> all lawyers. Didn't yeah. 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 Um that didn't go down too well, but that that um you kind of get the sense that that type of attack is we're just gonna we're heading towards more of that type of thing as we get close to the election. Yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the main thing with this is that you need to separate out the um the Rwanda plan from the other failures that they've had. Because I think the Rwanda plan, they are gonna try and paint it as them being martyrs and you know, we've we've tried to deal with, with immigration, mm-hmm. but all these people have blocked it. Whereas the other ones, you know, the barge, that does just scream of incompetence that yeah. they're just not able to um, but that might be flagship policies out really that might be their strategy and I'm sure it is is to, is to you know really focus on the Rwanda plan and go like that's the lefty lawyers mm. but that's just not how the how the public is going to receive it the, the public is not going to individuate between all these various schemes the public no, is going to think the government's making a lot of noise a lot of nasty noises about immigration and yet small boats are still coming in mm. and yet immigration is at a post-Brexit slash all-time high so do you think there's anything they can do now to try and rectify this issue? Do you think there's any particular policy that they can enact that will sort of push them more uh, in the right direction, short of yeah. cancelling all these policies? Well, this is the thing. It's difficult to... If you try and think of something that might be realistic that they might do... Yes. I don't actually know. Like, they could completely cancel what they're doing and completely rework their approach to immigration and asylum, but that's not going to happen. Um, but I, I really have no idea, because Rishi Sunak 
explicitly said we'll stop you know one of his five pledges for the year or in the lead up to the election was stop the boats and he said you know judge me on whether i achieve these pledges and i think june had more people crossing the channel than any previous june since they started recording is um, that right i think that is right okay. yeah um so yeah he he knows that he's made this kind of concrete pledge and he's not meeting it so yeah. at some point they must think well we, we've got to sort this out but I don't know what they're going to do about it. Yeah, I think another issue for Sunak is there are probably some things that like most people think would help. So a really obvious one is investing in the Home Office because the Home Office has just proved like singularly incompetent, has been unable to really sort out the asylum backlog for years now. And, you know, to sort that out, it would require at least just one big chunk of investment to sort of like just get over the backlog and then we can start afresh. Um, but that's a sort of like five-year project, probably, you know, or at least three or four-year project. And there's no way he could see results before the next election. So and that sort of scups him. I think the thing with the immigration thing is that it's actually such a difficult problem that proper reform of immigration as a policy area probably does require a whole parliament. Yeah. And Sian just doesn't have the time or, frankly, the money, given the sort of slightly self-imposed fiscal restraints he's put on himself. Um and so he's sort of reduced to doing slightly performative and fundamentally not particularly effective token policies like Rwanda. I think investment is something that has been spoken about quite a lot, especially to do with the um, asylum backlog. Um, a lot of these problems aren't necessarily to do with people coming across the channel. It's being unable to deal with the, them when they get here and you know, we have a we have a, a commitment to the international community to house asylum seekers until their, their their claims are processed, and there is such a backlog, and we just don't have, as you say, we just don't have the money to do that. So, I think that's definitely an interesting point. Okay, so moving on to the second topic, I think we've probably spoken about migration enough there. Um, the direction of the government. So obviously they're struggling a little bit on the, the as we've just discussed, the migration point, but they're also struggling in a lot of other areas at the minute. Um, and their move sort of right on migration tracks with their move right in a number of different policy mm -hmm. areas. Just this week, we've seen Mel Stride, the Work and Pensions Secretary, saying that over 50s should consider trying to sort of deliver, uh, deliver takeaways to try and deal with the economic inactivity in the UK, which is just kind of a desperate plea from the Conservatives to try and get more people back into work. Uh, we've also seen the Home Office suggesting that uh, more prisons should be built to try and tackle uh, the shop shoplifting, uh, which is, again, another sort of uh, law and order move right. We've also seen, and I know that you're quite interested in, Zach, uh, some net zero uh, stuff this week. Yeah. Specifically... Michael, uh, net zero scepticism. Yes. Specifically, yeah. we've seen some more uh, naughty oil contracts yeah. go up, uh, just about over 100 of them, uh, which a lot of people have criticised for undermining our net zero commitments. Uh, so, Zach, what do you think about their move right on net zero? Oh, well, do you want to give Rory a go first before I launch into a tirade <laughs> about net zero? Sure. Sorry. Wait, about do, net do you zero want to go first? You can talk about any yeah. of the right wing things, I think. Um, the one that kind of uh, drew, drew my attention there was the, the thing Mel Stride said about over 50s doing delivery or something. Sure. I haven't seen the full quote, so I, I don't want to misrepresent it. But it is interesting how back when uh, they were changing their policy on um, pension pension contributions and limits and caps and things all of that was about trying to get uh effectively trying to bring at, bring people who'd retired in early in their 50s out of retirement and back into the workforce mm. and this is kind of like the complete flip side of that you're not going to get someone who's 
earned a lot of money in their life and retired early, you're not going to convince them to come and do delivery to earn a bit of extra money and now you know support like the economy. Are they? Yeah, just being like, oh, I think I'll do yeah, that as take a hobby. it up. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's part of this wider push to to try and get you know get more people back into the workforce. But yeah. it's a slightly disjointed one it seems well, if you I, I know that this might be a bit of a niche reference but um <laughs> the tv show years and years i have watched years yes, and years. There's, yeah. a, there's a bit in that and that's sort of a dystopian vision of britain in the future yeah. it's actually scarily uh accurate it like, is and there's there is, a whole war in, war in ukraine yeah uh, mind you there was a war in ukraine kind of when it came out anyway just a smaller one but yes yeah well in one of the, the episodes there's a, a guy sort of loses his job he's I think he looks at least sort of 40, 50, and he ends up having to resort to doing Can't gig economy that. jobs such as yeah. delivery driving. Um, it's kind of eerie that that's already coming up in the news. Um, yeah, is it just a bit, yeah, it's a bit dystopian, really. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's the kind of thing you that various ministers and um, people in government, they, you know, make little suggestions like that. And it's not like a policy announcement or it's mm. not a big thing, but it's the kind of thing that gets in the headlines and just reflects quite poorly it, on them it does say something about the quality of mp in the conservative mm. parliamentary party i know this, this feels like a bit of an ad hominem this was a little bit of a cheap shot but there is something to be said for the fact that the quality of your average toy mp has markedly declined at least in terms of how they like present on telly has markedly declined from like the cameron years like you could you could not imagine yeah a, a backbench toy mp or a minister even saying something that silly off the cuff 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I think it says something more about the whips, that they allow yeah. these people to get onto TV, especially ministers. Like, these these aren't backbenchers. Yeah, I know. I think, by the way, that's a really good point. And that does partly explain the shift to the right, is I think that soon, one of Sunak's big, like, aims was to try and unify the party. And I think that as the poll ratings have declined and more and more MPs have realised that they are losing the election and probably their seats, then... Party unity and party discipline has just broken down. And they so, can't just uh, say anything. Yeah. And also the right wing of the Tory party are just louder than yeah. the left wing of the Tory party. So part of this rightward shift is just the fact that as sort of discipline breaks down, you just hear a lot more ridiculous, furious comments. And also Sunak internally comes on a lot more pressure from the right wing mm. to tack right. I think there's a couple other reasons, though, that the Tories have moved right. I think one, you know, and you actually just did a video on this, um, those are Sunak's political instincts. Like, I think he is an instinctive right winger. Mm. And I think sometimes too much is made of his like moderate vibes. Yeah. Um, I think that's more an aesthetic thing than actually a substantial thing. It's more a style than a substance thing. Um, and then actually most of his political instincts when it comes to like sort of fiscal conservatism, Brexit, for example, social policy, they're all quite right wing. And so I think that actually this is sort of where he sort of reverts to when he's stressed out as a politician. Um, and I think he's, that's what's happening there. And the final thing I think is that actually he's trying to find political space between him and Labour because mm. Labour keeps on following him to the right. And he realises that if they have very similar policy agendas, the Tories and Labour, Labour will just win because the Tories have had such a crap record in government and they're just so generally unpopular and the backbenchers are so mental that they're just that, that they're not going to win an election like that. So he's trying to find political space. Uh, away from Labour but like you saw that on I think like a good example is probably uh, probably the net zero stuff is a good example in that Sunak originally thought he could find some space by saying that net zero commitments are too expensive and then Labour did that whole thing where they said we're going to delay our big green new deal thing which costs like 30 billion quid for two years and so that covered off a bit of the space and then there was the Uxbridge by-election where the sort of like point of contention was ULEZ 
And straight afterwards, you did see this sort of like anti-net zero sentiment coming out of the Tory party. But actually, it was a similar thing in the Labour leadership. And Labour leadership, Angela Rayner and Keir Starmer, started pressuring Sadiq Khan to scrap or at least delay ULEZ. Mm. And I think that made Sunak a little bit panicked. He was like, oh, how am I going to find him more space? He'll just tack further. Right? You know, he'll go for like North Sea oil drilling permits, which you just mentioned. Um, then he'll also sort of let, there were some quite... Oh, he did a whole lot of like motorist things, didn't he? He, he did, did like, yeah. Got in Thatcher's old Rover, yeah. He did got in Thatcher's old Rover, yeah. Yeah. And said, I'm on the side of car drivers. Which, it's apparently you guys compliant as well, because it's, uh, it's a, like it's a vintage car yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the, the, I think the, I think a couple of things here. I, I don't want to, I'm just going to go on a quick rant about the net zero stuff, if that's all right. I know we've covered it in previous podcasts, but I do think it's, it's probably the most important policy issue uh, in the world at the moment. And I think, the movement on it recently has been really, really interesting because for a long time, the UK has actually been one of the very few countries to enjoy a, a sort of near universal consensus on net zero. You know, say what you want about Boris Johnson and whether or not he's right or left wing, but he was quite pro-environment and he was very eco-conscious. Um, and it's the same with David Cameron. I mean, I know he said, like, cut the green crap was what he said once, but he also said, vote Tory, vote green. Yeah, exactly, like, vote Tory, yeah. go green. And we've been really lucky. I mean, you look like look at America. It's a completely different ballgame over there. There's this massive sort of political uh, debate over the environment and what sort of like environmental policies which should be happening. But I think what you're seeing here is the beginning of a slightly inevitable process, which is when we really start getting into the weeds of what net zero means. And I think that so far, one of the things that's held this consensus together is the fact that when we talk about net zero, we talk in binaries. You know, you talk about net zero or you talk about climate skeptics. And in the UK, no one's a climate skeptic or no politicians are, and very few people are. Yeah. And so everyone's like, okay, we all, we all agree on net zero. And that's what the polling suggests. So if you ask them about net zero, everyone says, we love net zero. But that sort of obfuscates the fact that within net zero, there are a whole load of different policy options. There's so many different policy options. And I think as the deadlines start coming down the track, we're finally having to decide which of those policy options we're going for and which ones make sense and which ones don't make sense. I think the problem for Sunak is that he's, tr he's, he's getting into that now. He's trying to figure out what net zero means, but I think he runs the risk of looking anti-net zero, and that just leaves loads of political space for Labour to be like the pro-net zero party. Um, but I do think that this is like, leaving aside whether or not it's like good political posturing by Sunak, I do think this is like a really interesting time for British politics as we start we've been able to just talk about net zero or climate skeptics for a long time. And as we start really disentangling it, like where do we end up? What sort of policies do we end up endorsing? Well, it's worth saying with the North Sea permits that Sunak's defence for giving them is that we're still going to be using these, uh, you know, fossil fuels, about 25% of, of, of energy will come from fossil fuels still, even in 2050. So it's worth giving out these permits. But when you actually dig down into his defence there, uh, we export a lot of that North Sea oil. So this whole like um, argument that he's coming across to look like a bit of a, you know, he's not taking net zero seriously. There is some, there is some, you know, I think there is there is a valid argument to make to make there on this. But I totally agree with you that it is going to be interesting to see how they respond to these policy options. But one of the first ones that we've seen this year on North Sea Oil, one of the first of these policy options, Sunak seems to have taken the maintaining the status quo line rather than doing something more proactive. But in a way, he's not even maintaining the status quo. They've really... Not, he's issued these new licenses, but also their messaging around it has gone from 
yes, look, we, oil and gas will still play a part in our mm. energy mix. We've just got to keep going while we transition. They've changed from that now to saying we're going to exploit the North Sea for all it's got. You know, basically yes. they're, they're making themselves the anti-just stop oil. Yes. Um, and they see that as their kind of uh, winning strategy, perhaps. Um so I think Which it, it just isn't. It yeah. just isn't because for that to work, you have to have to paint Labour as the just as the pro just up oil people. But that's never going to work, and Starmer's never going to fall what, into that trap. But that is what they are going down that I, line. No, no, I agree. I think that yeah. is the strategy. I think again, we go back to that thing about he's trying to find political space with Starmer, and he hopes that if he tacks far enough right on environmental issues, Starmer will stop at some point. Yes. and then there'll be some sort of political mm. space, and then he can try. Even and, just with these new licenses. Yeah. Um, so Labour have a pledge that when they if they if when they yes. come into power, they'll. Yeah. They won't issue any new licenses, but they're not going to cancel any existing ones. They, they, yeah, but the caveat there is that they are going to stop any that haven't, because with the licenses, there's quite a long Yeah, it doesn't mean, it's not so, like they start drilling straight away. Yeah, the so the ones yeah. that are still in, um, still going through that process, mm. they'll stop them, yeah, apparently. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's a, it's an important... Yeah, yeah, I guess so, but I, I think that it kind of makes it seem like... Uh, and it's not just that the oil licenses, it's other, you know, bits of yeah, legislation sure. as well. But Labour do Labour or Keir Starmer has kind of done this thing where he's he's saying we'll do these things when you know, from when we come into power. Yeah. But a lot of if the Tories do stuff up until then, we won't necessarily stop them, yeah. Or, you know, reverse it, stop it, scrap it, whatever whatever you want to say. But um it does I don't know, Zach, you probably have a better thought on this, but do you think any kind of trap that the Conservatives are trying to set for Labour on this, do you think no, I, I think it's a really all. bad move. And I think, again, this is, goes back to things we're talking about. I think it's partly because Sunak is facing internal pressure from, like, well, you might not describe it as, like the, as the climate skeptic wing of the Tory parliamentary party, but there's also a larger, what you might just call, like, sort of uh, net zero skeptic, maybe, yeah. wing, or, like, pro-motorist wing of the Tory mm. party. There's quite a lot of Tory MPs who are obsessed with cars and, like, protecting motorists. And I think that, that maybe there is there is some political gain to be had here if the Tories play it right that maybe you can try and find certain policies where Labour for internal reasons have to endorse them but they're not popular with the wider elect. I mean ULES maybe is a good example of that but I I think Rory's right about the messaging I think the messaging is really bad at the moment and you're right it's not actually it's not actually that climate skeptical policy like saying yes to North Sea oil and gas especially given that he's right we will be using oil and gas for a while and that you know, you can make an, I don't think it's a good one, but you can make an energy security argument, which should have some purchase, given what happened with the war in Ukraine, all that sort of shenanigans. I would say, though, on the energy security point, we do export like 80% of the oil from from the North Sea. But if energy and security, same, so, with, uh, same with gas is 60%, I think. But so, obviously, in an international trade system, we would export lots of our oil and gas, but the, the point the point about having a domestic oil and gas supply is in the event of crisis, mm. we at least have some to go around. It's like when, when America started claiming that it was energy independent during the shale years, so basically in the 2010s, America started talking, and Obama started talking about energy independence. But that didn't mean they didn't export anything. They exported loads. It just meant that America had enough oil and gas to supply its domestic needs. So that's the way you can talk about it. I mean, that, that's what he probably means if you ask him to flesh it out when he talks about energy security and energy independence. Um, but you're right, like, in practice, it will all be sold. And also, I mean, more fundamentally, I, I think that it's a bit naive to ever think that the UK could be energy independent. Well, I, well, this was, this was going to be my other point, is that I, I understand that, that in, in an extreme circumstance that 
being able to use our own resources is good for energy security. But the, the, the facts are that the vast majority of uh, even imports of uh, oil and gas come from friendly countries. I think most of it comes from Norway anyway, which isn't, you know, what what circumstances is there going to be that we're not going to be able to import more from them? Like that's got to be some crazy diplomatic situation we get ourselves into where we're not able to import from Norway anymore. I think most of our gas comes from Norway, but I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, what what is, you're right. I think it's futile trying to guarantee literally nation-specific exactly. energy sovereignty yeah. for the UK. And you're right, to the extent that we could ever, ever be energy secure, we already are, basically, you know. There has to be some sort of, I think if, if you're at the point where the UK is not like energy secure, you're talking about a massive geopolitical fallout exactly. that we probably don't even really want to imagine. And that fundamentally it's not pragmatic or cost effective to prepare for. Um, it's also, yeah, it's also worth saying in that context that North Sea oil and gas is expensive to extract. It's, you know, the reason there's an international oil system and is that, well, the, basically this only really makes sense if international oil prices are above a certain threshold. Mm. Um, and they're quite high at the moment, but not that high. And if they continue to fall further, it will become fundamentally unprofitable to extract North Sea oil and gas. But I, I go back to the messaging. I do think you're right about the messaging. I think that the it's bad messaging, and I think it may. I think the public still thinks in broadly that same binary that I just referred to of climate skeptic versus pro net zero. And I think this gives off climate skeptic vibes. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that that is going to turn off a lot of voters and especially what you might call blue wall voters, you yeah. know, especially like Tory voters in Southern seats who loved Boris Johnson or, but especially when he was mayor or who, you know, like David Cameron and they're not going to like this sort of messaging. I love that on the podcast recently, your framing of issues have very much become vibe-based political economy. It's very much, these are the facts, but these are the vibes there's it gives a, there's off. There's probably a book to be written on that. Yeah, I exactly. I yeah. agree. Yeah, I think we, well, the last, on, we should talk about like the, the efficacy of climate policies, though, because I think mm. a lot of this like quite angry rhetoric about climate policies and a lot of this sort of like, you know, you, you, in, you, you'll say Rishi Sunak is like a climate, well, Keir Starmer will say Rishi Sunak is a climate sceptic. And he'll say that Starmer is a sort of like just stop oil fanatic or whatever, whatever language they want to use. It obscures the fact there is a really, really interesting debate over what constitutes an effective climate policy. Because ULES is a, is a good example of like a policy where it is quite costly. I mean, ULES is framed as like a thing about air quality, but let's just treat it as an environmental policy because that's what it tacitly is. Yeah. Then it's quite costly. And the aggregate effect on emissions, like CO2 emissions in the global context, is tiny. It's, it's quite costly and the global impact is tiny. So when Nigel Farage stands up and says, like, why are we spending so much money given we only account for you know, 1% of global emissions? He has like at least half a point. And it's very interesting that Tony Blair hit the headlines a couple of days ago because he basically endorsed that line of reasoning. He said, you know, what's the point in us doing ULEZ? What's the point in us doing wind turbines when China accounts for 35% of global emissions, when like Nigeria is going to account for the next 10% in however many years, uh, when America accounts for 15, 20%. And he has, he has like half a point, but I think that the efficacy of a climate policy is not, should not just be measured in its sort of direct impact on CO2 emissions. The other thing that the climate policy has, has, have real symbolic value in, and I mean that as in like they carry political momentum and if you want to make the energy transition, you have to, the, the world as a whole has to have the political momentum for it. And that involves developed countries showing that it is possible and they are willing to make the sacrifices. And it involves developing countries developing in that direction and investing in renewables and saying that they will, they will make the transition when they can. And when we, do, when we say stuff like this, when we say like, oh, we can't reach net zero, it's too expensive, what's the point, China? 
the, we push the political momentum the other way and we mm -hmm. enter this almost dangerous positive feedback loop, or at least this positive feedback loop is impossible, where we say, oh, we can't make it, China. Yeah. China says, well, why would we make it when our GDP per capita yeah. is a third of yours? And then, you know, Nigeria goes, well, if China's not going to do it, there's no point doing it. And so there is this sort of like political momentum and we're sort of teetering on this vertice where we could go either way, you know? And if enough countries go, look, we're going to take climate change seriously, we've got to start making the transition. I mean, China, actually, to their credit, do take that very, very seriously. And the Inflation Reduction Act in the US also takes it very seriously. Then we will get the political momentum. And actually what will happen is if you're a country that goes, oh, we're not going to bother, the rest of the countries will be like, you, you're the odd one out. We're going to turn on you. You look like a pillock. You look like the selfish one. There'll be a lot of political pressure to do net zero. And what I worry about is when people take this sort of like very short-term, quite narrow view of a way of evaluating climate policies, they run the risk of pushing the entire world in that political direction. And the point I'm making is that there's a symbolic value mm. to climate policies that is real and it makes a difference. I think the pressure argument is is definitely true. I think that, that that's that's where this all, all leans on. Um, you know, if we're not doing anything, it means that the, the, the pressure on other countries just doesn't increase. It means that China will turn around and say, why the hell are we going to do anything? I think that's all absolutely correct. And I think that that's why it's it's so important. And it's just a just going back to what we were discussing before. I just think it's such a shame that Sunak has done these naughty oil mm. licenses and, and sort of one of the first key points at which he could demonstrate some leadership on this. He's sort of not even maintain yeah. the status quo, but gone further and, the other way. And all of this has happened during this a summer where you yeah. just look at, you can take any country around the world and there's probably some extreme weather event of some form that's, you know, killing people. I think it was yeah. such a good move. I think it was, was it the UN that termed it, we're now into the stage of global, global boiling. boiling yeah. And the fact that they not only use that phrase, but they use that phrase while you're watching most of Europe undergo wildfires, you know, temperatures in excess of 35 degrees. Yeah, what's fascinating about that is you're watching most of Europe do that, but at the same time as the French are terrified of raising fuel duty post mm. Gilets jaunes, you're saying at the same time as the German political system is convulsed by this mass opposition to this heat yeah. pump issue. And you're saying at the same time as we're flirting with more drilling in the North Sea. And I think, you know, having just ranted about like the political impact and the symbolic value of climate policy, I think there's, there's one caveat here, which is that politicians need to be clever about it. And we talked about this before, but that means that climate policies have to A, be pretty effective given their cost. You know, like, so you, ha you want to be aiming at policies that do significantly reduce your CO2 emissions while not being super expensive for the taxpayer or the, the sort of bog standard Brit. You know, like, for example, you probably want to be focusing more on reforming the grid and investing in like nuclear than you do in like i don't know forcing everyone to buy a heat pump i mean that's not that's a good thing but like that's probably more cost effective as it were yeah. to focus on the, the former rather than the latter and you also have to make sure that they feel fair that's the real thing i think about climate politics that we're going to find out is that actually perhaps the only way to make climate transition policies palatable to an electorate is to accompany them with some serious redistribution. Yeah. Because you see it every time a climate policy falls on poor people, and they fall on poor people because poor people use more energy as a fraction of their total expenditure, so that naturally falls on poor people. But every time it disproportionately affects poor people, the political blowback is instant. And I think politicians will, will find out, they'll sort of have to learn that actually if they want to make net zero, there will have to be some sort of redistribution to protect the worse off in yeah. society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sorry, yeah. Randy. No, sure I think that was that fine. was very good. People, sure fine. Yeah. Yeah. people in the comments seem yeah. to love when you go on rants, so I'm sure that's no, gone okay. down very well. Okay, so we have spoken about that for quite a while, and the office is getting quite warm. Um, you know, it's uh, 
global boiling in the office, isn't it? Um, no? It's not really something to joke about, Boom. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> went down so well in the part that was cut. Out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so we need to speak about the third thing that we said we would uh, before we end, which is post-Brexit border checks. Pull it together, Rory, come on. Sorry. Um, so do either of you want to explain what this topic is? The yeah, sure. I border checks being so delayed. Very, very briefly is that with, with Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, there were these phase, supposed to be these phased in essentially sanitary and phytosanitary checks. So mm. checks on stuff like sausages or like meats, which are like they run the risk of carrying disease and the EU yeah. has very stringent rules on them. And actually so does the UK. Um, and we were supposed to phase these checks in across the Irish Sea. Uh, over time, and it's supposed to originally like come into play about six months after the, or maybe mm. maybe only three months after the transition um, period ended. Uh, but then, somewhat predictably, the government said we're not ready for these like quite intensive checks. Uh, delayed them once, delayed them twice, delayed them three times, and. Some people say delayed them four times, but I think that that's only if you include like the original delay. And this is technicality; I don't care. But the FT is like running a tire, uh, head page about like this is the fifth delay, but I think it's really the fourth delay. Right. Um, and it was supposed to come in in October of this year. These new checks, but somewhat unsurprisingly, the UK has gone once again. I don't know. We don't have the capacity or the infrastructure to perform these checks. And according to sources in the government that have been talking to the FT. Part of the anxiety or the driving force behind this, this policy is, is this anxiety about inflation and about the impact that these new checks could have on inf- inflation and specifically food inflation, which as anyone living in the UK or anyone who watches TLDR videos will know is, is a big deal here. And the fact that food prices have been rising quite as rapidly as they have has really upset some people. And so obviously if you know, these would mainly affect stuff like meat and cheese, but meat and cheese have already been up about 30%, 35%, depends what you measure, but basically they're very far more mm. expensive than they were. And to add another layer of bureaucracy and run the risk of like further prices increases being passed on to the consumer is something the government just doesn't have the stomach for at the moment. So they've said, we're going to delay it again. And I think this is nominally illegal. I think it's probably fair to say this is almost definitely <laughs> illegal under national international law. It's a violation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But... It's happened so many just times before. For viewers, I think it's worth just pointing out here that the Northern Ireland Protocol that was written up and drawn up by the Tory government. Oh, yeah. Well, by Boris Johnson, yeah. And it's, it, that's supposed to describe the trading arrangements between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, mm. which is sort of like essentially acting as an indirect border for the UK and the EU. Yeah. And, yeah, the, uh, the, the EU originally imposed or started legal proceedings against the UK the first time they delayed it. But after the second time, they were like, oh, OK, we can't be bothered. And the third yeah. time, they said the same thing. And so the fourth time, I don't think they're going to be bothered by it. So, so given that it's been delayed multiple times and it seems like the reaction from the people that it affects is always positive when it gets delayed, <laughs> is this going to just be something that becomes almost like a, a kind of tradition? We just we keep delaying, we keep delaying it and... We never reintroduced it. Tradition is such like a cosy word. Yeah. Like we could yeah. have like, you know, Brexit border check day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but the, uh, I think probably, yes. I think well, it's one of those things where it, fundamentally you just need quite a lot of bandwidth mm. to sort it out, you know, and the government just doesn't have that at the moment. Um, I think it, maybe there's something that the, an incoming Labour government could do to soften the sort of logistical impact. They, they might, there might be some, I, I should know more about this than mm. I don't. There might be some sort of regulatory alignment they could do or I guess, yeah. some sort of I guess that agreement. would come as a wider kind of reassessment of the relationship with Europe rather than a yeah. specific thing on this. But 
yeah, if I was the government right now, I'd probably be thinking if we're getting kicked out in you know less than a year, is Why? this something we want to Stress take on? This. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's it's sort of unsurprising. Um, I think again, the, the only thing I think is embarrassing for the government is is this tacit admission that Brexit is having an impact on inflation, mm-hmm. which the government has sort of previously denied uh, in a sort of roundabout way. Um, but I think it's unsurprising. And I think it's just a reminder of something that people told us seven years ago, which is that, or eight years ago even now, which is that Brexit is just this enormous logistical undertaking. And then if you want to leave the single market and the customs union without creating a border on the island of Ireland, you're going to really struggle. Um, and we're still, we're still learning that lesson, I guess. Um, and we, I, th- I think it, it, the, only, the only real political impact this will have, I think it just adds to this sentiment that's borne out in polling that, Brexit just is not working and that even if it didn't have the catastrophic impacts that some people predicted it would early on in like the referendum, it's just this constant drag on the economy and the sort of political life in the UK. Um, and so I think that's, I think unfortunately as well, given that the, the Tories are sort of, they've owned Brexit in a way, mm. they're the ones who will pay the political penalty. Yeah, can't believe no one warned it's, us about it as well. <laughs> Terrible. It's uh, quite a sad note to end on, really. It's quite a sad podcast in in. When was the last summation, really, isn't it? That ended on like a happy note. Do you well, we got happy, the inflation's down. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, the world's burning, Brexit's going badly, but at least inflation's starting to come down from its insane levels. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some positive news for everyone. <laughs> I hope everyone feels better. Uh, yeah. But anyway, bringing you the doom and gloom, uh, Zach and Rory, thank you. And uh, we'll Anytime. do it again next week, I'm sure, sure if you want to <laughs> feel just as bad. Yeah.